Welcome to Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. In today's podcast, I was actually asked to give a lecture on raising creative children in my son's college class on children's literature. Enough people weren't able to make it there that they asked me to make it a podcast. So I did. When Rowan was in first grade, I was working with America Reads, and as a result, I would go into first grade classrooms and work with little kids who were struggling with the alphabet and connecting letters and sounds and words. It was so much fun, and I really loved being able to see these kids struggle, but then overcome those struggles in learning how to read. One day, I was actually in my son's classroom. He was in first grade at the time, so I got to be in his class and work with some of the kids in his classroom. And they were getting ready for a spelling test. And there my son was with his best friend, and they were happily chattering away, paying no attention to anybody. And because they were paying no attention to anybody, neither was anybody else. And so finally, I told the whole class... Uh, stepping a little bit on the teacher's toes, but the teacher was a marvelous woman and allowed it. Uh, I told the whole class, look, if you guys are all quiet during the spelling test, I will tell you a story afterwards with dragons in it. I I was desperate. And, uh, dragons turned out to be what was in my head. Well, it worked. All of the kids shut up immediately, and it was the quietest spelling test I think I'd ever heard. Afterwards... I had to come up with a story to tell them about dragons. And the only story that was running through my head that I could tell that had dragons in it was the story of Beowulf. Now, Beowulf isn't exactly the kind of epic saga that one thinks about telling five-year-olds. But here's the thing. Once upon a time, all of these stories were told not written, not read, they were told in great big public halls where you'd have dogs and kids and men and women and servants and people of all stations and all education all hanging out while the bard or the scald or the druid or whoever told the story, told the story. Writing these stories down came a long time afterwards. That means that these stories are good enough to tell anybody. And sure enough, as I told my five-year-olds the story of Beowulf, the great hero who rode across the seas to rescue a friend in need and fought a monster and then the monster's mom, and then many, many years later when he was an old man, took another group of people and fought off a dragon, oh man, those kids loved it. They ate it up. And they ate up every story I told them every week after. I told them about Thor and his magic hammer. I told them about the Goose Girl. We talked about all of the stories. I gave them stories that I had loved as a kid, as an adolescent, all of the myths, and they loved every single one of them. Because here's the thing. People love a good story. Everybody loves a good story. Why? Well, in a previous podcast, I talked about the importance of myth. Myths tell us who we are, where we come from, why we're here, where we're going. Myths teach us how to respond in certain situations. One of my favorites is still Thor and his magic hammer, at least in part because 
my grandfather named my father after the king of the frost giants, which is kind of ironic, but uh, that's another story. However, the point being, since we're talking about stories and various stories and how they work, the story about Thor and his magic hammer, if you've read it, Neil Gaiman just came out with a book on it and it's brilliant. Um, But if you've got the Thor's magic hammer thing going, the story tells us not only about how to behave when something goes wrong, right? The hammer gets stolen, but it goes through the process of diplomacy and then threats and then trickery and then uh, taking revenge. Okay, so maybe the last part went a little overboard, but that's a good lesson too. You know, it's a lesson in, oh, maybe that was a little bit much, wreaking mayhem and mass destruction on the entire household and killing them all. But then again, maybe you shouldn't be stealing the hammer that belongs to the God of Thunder. Just maybe. These kinds of lessons are lessons that need to be taught. Children long to know who they are and how to act in the world. They will pick up on those lessons whether or not we teach them. If we do not tell them stories, they will figure out the stories on their own. They will watch us, they will watch the world around them, and they will make up their own stories. So, one of the first steps in raising your children to be the best that they can be, I would say, is tell them stories. Tell them all of the stories. Reading stories is supplemental to telling stories. Stories were always told first. So tell them, recite them, perform them, uh, and make sure that you expose them to all of the stories. There are so many myths out there that no matter what your child is good at, no matter what your child struggles with, there will be a story that will speak to their experience, but you have to expose them to a lot of different stories. That's what libraries are really good for. There are all of the stories. The second thing um, is, at least the second thing that I've learned, is to make the stories personal. When you tell stories and you make the stories personal, it gives children a way in. It gives all of us a way in. Uh, Instead of thinking that the story about Thor and his magic hammer is about gods once upon a time way long ago and it has nothing to do with anybody, it changes quite significantly when you learn that your grandfather was named after the king of the frost giants who stole the hammer and then got himself very dead. Uh, And it ends up teaching some important lessons in a more immediate way than maybe any other kind of lesson would happen. So making these stories connected to you is valuable. Making them connected to your heritage is important because people love knowing where they come from, really, where where their DNA is, where their heritage lies. So that's important. The other important thing, um, make it age-appropriate, right? Age-appropriate is how you tell the story, not what story you tell necessarily. Remember that we're building foundations. Children show up absolutely, they are themselves. They're fully realized, intelligent beings. They're just trying to figure out this whole being on Earth thing. 
And so the first stories that they learn are the stories that will frame their entire life experience. So we need to be sure that the stories that we tell them first, the stories that they learn first, are the stories that will best help them to become their best selves. It is always, of course, possible to rewrite those stories and to reframe them. It just takes a lot of work afterwards. Of course, that's what therapists are for. Uh, the other thing would that I would say is acknowledge the danger of fairy tales. I know when I was a kid, I ended up with fairy tale syndrome, and that was not necessarily a good thing. The, the concept of fairy tale syndrome, at least in my experience, I have no idea if this is actually a real thing that people talk about, but it's what I call it. It's the belief that when life is miserably difficult, if you're really a hero or a heroine, somehow magic will happen. You will get the fairy tale godmother, the witch in the woods, the old lady who gives you a magic what's-its and allows you to do the thing, whatever the thing may be. But the thing is... What do you do when magic doesn't happen? You know, when the fairy godmother never shows up, when you don't get to go to the ball, when things go deeply wrong and Prince Charming never appears or Prince Charming turns out to be a frog or what's worse, you know, something even more damaging to you. What happens if you find out that uh, you're neither a princess nor an ogre, but somebody totally different and you stuck yourself in the wrong story? What do you do when that happens? Uh, that's when myths come in handy because fairy tales have a tendency to say, and everybody lived happily ever after. And if you're not living happily ever after, of course, you've messed up the fairy tale. Myths, however, don't always end happily. Uh, some stories, good ones, won't always end happily. The little match girl, the little girl dies. The original ending of The Little Mermaid, the little mermaid dies. She turns into bubbles and floats away because she sacrifices herself, right? These kinds of stories are just as important. Are they as pleasant? Are they as comforting? Actually, sometimes, yeah. Because it proves happy endings don't always come, but sometimes you get something better. It's not always the end of the story. The romance, the marriage, the living happily ever after, even if that's not your story, your story still has value. That's what these non-fairy tales teach us. And so they are just as important. Another thing that's important when raising creative children is boredom. Oh my word, boredom is valuable. I had a, a prof back at the University of California who uh, was actually studying the importance of boredom to creativity. The thing is, is that when you get bored, your mind will start looking for something to do, right? You, you start coming up with something. And I can't remember how many times when I was a kid, I'd go to my mom and say, I'm bored. And she'd say, well, there's chores. And I'd say, bleh. And then I would find something to do. And when I became a parent myself, I did the same thing to my son. He'd say, Mom, I'm bored. I'd say, do the dishes. He'd say, no. And then a little while later, I'd find him thumbing through a book or writing something down or practicing his drawing. That's how boredom leads to creativity. 
and leads to exploration. So boredom, highly valuable and much underrated. The, uh, the, one of the things that you have to do when you allow kids to be bored is you have to have an environment for them that gives them resources to play with. Give them books to read or look at. Give them toys if you can. But if you can't, expose them to whatever is available and let them be creative. It will happen. It will be brilliant. Uh, The other part of that, of course, is to, as much as you can, expose them to everything the best that you possibly can. Expose them to the best music. That's what PBS does. It, it tries to bring fabulous music, fabulous productions, fabulous uh, everything. You'll notice that just about every community and every community theater will have days where um, performances are free or close to free that, uh, that they encourage kids to come to. They want to expose people to theater. Uh, This is one of my other favorite stories because most people also don't expect Shakespeare, for example, to be something that you can take kids to. Well, that's probably because most high school students are exposed to shows like Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet or Julius Caesar. And as a result, they never learn that Shakespeare is a comic genius uh, or was a comic genius because he's got some of the funniest, slapstickiest comedies ever. Now, my first play uh, were actually three of them because my dad was tech director at the, um, at the Colorado Shakespeare Festival. So my first plays were As You Like It and Macbeth, um, Turn Around Three Times, Spit Over Your Shoulder and Knock Till You Let Back In, and then uh, Richard, I think Richard II. Or maybe it was Othello. Uh, either way. Point being that I was exposed to lots of really cool plays right off the bat, and I was nine, uh, and my mom decided that she was going to make me learn a monologue. I still remember the quality of mercy is not strained, it droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven, right? Uh, I was nine, and she made me learn a Shakespearean monologue, and it was fine. So when my son was nine, or however old he was, and I decided that he needed to be exposed to Shakespeare. I showed him, as you like it, he was bored. I tried to show him other, he was bored. And finally, uh, I said, okay, we are going to make you like Shakespeare, will you or not? Luckily, that summer, down at Redlands Bowl, they were showing the Comedy of Errors. And if you don't know the Comedy of Errors, I'm sorry, because it is the funniest, slapstickiest show of missed identities and crazy shenanigans. It's hilarious. And my son loved every minute of it. It wasn't even that great of a production, but it showed him what fun theater can be and how cool Shakespeare is. That opened the door wide. He loved all kinds of theater after that. Another way of getting them involved is showing them beautiful art. What all of the art, right? Don't just take them to modern art galleries. Show them beautiful illustrated books. Show them classics. Kids, adults, the great thing about art is that you do not have to be educated to understand the vast majority of it. That's the whole point of art, is that for the most of history, art was meant 
to be a communicative tool from the elites to the masses. You're not supposed to have a huge education in order to understand it, at least on some level. You can appreciate whether or not it's pretty. You can appreciate whether or not it tells a story. You can sometimes get involved or connected with the people that are there. There's something in art, especially good art, that will speak to just about everybody. So expose your kids to it. Expose children to all of it. Uh, expo- let them play around with Legos. Let them play around with Lincoln Logs or Tinker Toys. The more you expose them to various things, not just STEM stuff, but also the arts, the more opportunities you get to find out, number one, what they're good at, number two, where their strengths are, and number three, what they love. Those three things are not always the same. And that's important. We have this thing where we tell kids, you can be anything you want to be, but that's not true. You might absolutely love science, but if you don't do science well, if your brain doesn't work in the way that science needs, it might be better for you to go into a different field. And that's what happened to me. I absolutely love animals and plants and things like that. But science, frankly, I, I fell asleep in physics all through high school, no matter how much I tried not to. No matter how much I like stars and astronomy, I fell asleep in astronomy class in college. I just couldn't keep myself awake, which told me something. It told me, you will never be an astronomer. And that's fine. I found a field that I absolutely love and that I am good at. I still appreciate astronomy. I use it in my classes all the time. It informs my life, but I don't have to make it my life. I've made my field my life. Children need to recognize that they can love something and not make it their whole lives. And that what you're good at, what you love, and where your talents lie can all work together but you don't have to be good at everything. This has been an episode of Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. Thanks for listening.